It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but there's no need. Something in your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no sheets. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down, like fire in a fire. This is the southern gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And bloom that, in this dry atmosphere. We, this dry we have atmosphere. located ourselves to. Well, we're in South Florida, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> no. No? I seem to remember a plane ride yesterday. That's right. That's right. Guys, we are in the beautiful state of Idaho today. We're in Idaho Falls, and we've been traveling around, seeing the country. We're going to a wilderness medical conference and... This is our way to add a few days to that so that we can see what's what around here. I, I haven't been to a couple of these states, and you have, you have I think. I, I probably, because I, I went to Yellowstone when I was 8 and 18, so probably I'm thinking my dad flew us into Salt Lake City. I'll have to ask him about that. But we did fly into Salt Lake City yesterday, which is kind of... a an unusual place because there's not a lot of trees <laughs> you know it's yes it, that kind of semi-arid freaks me out a little bit it's very like dry semi-desert but place. lots of really nice people i Absolutely. will say that it's a very very friendly area and uh we were pleased to meet a few people and so then we drove through actually we went to something really unusual yes Crater. the craters of the moon national monument Wow, is that amazing, folks. If you get out to Idaho Falls and that area. Go west. Wow. Directly, yeah. An hour and a half or so west. Mm -hmm. Not too, too far. But totally worth it. It's like you're on another planet. You're like on the moon. The craters of the moon. Now, the funny thing is there are no craters there. No. It doesn't really look... Moon light. Well, I mean, it may look a little moon, more moon. I don't know. I haven't been on the moon recently. Reminds myself. me of Mars a little bit. Could, could <laughs> basically have. what happened over there is they had volcanic activity. They actually have what looked like old dormant volcanoes in the general area, and right several there, several of them. I yes, might add. right, and right there, there's all this black volcanic rock, like you would see in places like Hawaii, I guess. And where Mount Kilauea, Kilauea is erupting right now. Uh, the funny thing is that spot right there at Craters of the Moon was the most recent and was only 2,000 years ago. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I think it's the activity there is only 
between 2,000 and 15,000 years old, although, of course, I'm sure that area has had volcanic activity for much longer. But they have. I think the first one they, they can trace back, at least to what they can find, uh, I think they said six million years ago. But now what happens is the Earth's crust moves. That's why it looks like it pops up in different spots. But really, the magma underground is sitting in the same location. What's happening is the Earth is moving along. That's the same thing as to why the Hawaiian islands look sort of lined up a little bit, slightly on a curve. Uh It's the way the crust is moving over the magma. And so the magma stays there, and then every few years <laughs> ha 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 it it few, pops out of the in ground geologic time few exactly zillion years so currently the caldera which was underneath the craters of the moon is now located it didn't move but the earth earth has moved and now yellowstone has moved over that area and that's, that's where why the caldera and the active volcanic activity right that's why we been. have so many of the geysers and the hot springs and all of that activity over there is due to that caldera located, which apparently all the time they find out it's a little bit bigger than they thought, right. which is <laughs> super scary because that's called a super volcano there. Right. So if you live in Ohio... It could be a super yes. volcano if it erupts. Right. So if you do see a... Uh, do want to see a cinder cone, spatter cone, and a lot of uh, evidence of volcanic activity, and you live in the lower 48, then maybe the closest one to you might just be the Craters of the Moon very, National very Park. Very, amazing. So cinder cones, spatter cones, uh, obvious lava flow. There was that one that uh, comes up shaped like wood because of gas bubbles. Right, right. There's some in Looks which... like wood. Right, there's some in which there's the imprint of wood... Uh, on it or, or the bark of wood on it there's lots of different uh types of cones and types of cinders and and, and stuff some, that there's has some performed. caves you can actually get a permit at the office to do a cave some exploration cave exploration right see we might see some bats you have to bring flashlights right. though right. absolutely we did not do that we didn't have enough time <laughs> oh we forgot something we are <laughs> right, exactly. Go ahead. <laughs> Welcome go to the Survival Medicine Hour, a lifeline of liberty in a licentious world. I was so excited about that fun we had yesterday. Yeah, we did have a lot of fun exploring that area. And we did not take any lava rocks. I want to make that statement. That's right. Oh, I want to just say, I just want to say that you need to, t- what you do need to take is water to oh. that place. And you do need Lordy, to, Lordy. boy, oh boy, it, there's not a lot of cover there, as you can imagine. Because that area is still doesn't have a lot of doesn't have a lot of vegetation and it's semi-arid to begin with, and there's just not a lot of shade there. So make sure you wear a hat. Make sure you cover yourself up well enough so you don't sunscreen, wind up hat, sunglasses, and copious amounts of water. Make sure you fill up in your on your gas tank on your way out there because there's only we went through Arco. There was a couple gas stations mm-hmm. there, but. There's kind of nothing out there. <laughs> so yes, right. eat and get bring lots of water, picnic lunch. I saw some people full there, picnic of, tables. Full they, tank of gas would be helpful, too. Exactly. <laughs> Top off your, your gas and, and dr- all I can say is drink, 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 but only water, That's not right. alcohol. <laughs> That's right. That makes it worse. That's right. So I'm Joe Walton, MD, and I am also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 
articles, videos, podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. This lovely thing is... Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, which means I have a master's degree in nursing. <laughs> That's right. Very Those good. are my certifications. My Very actual good. education, the highest, is a master's degree in nursing. So you are I never Amy that. Alton, RN, no, no. ARNP, there you go. ARNP, and CNM. And MSM. And MSN, right, because you have a master's, master's degree. Science and so nursing. I'm Joseph Alton. Oh, my goodness. If you wanted to add my bachelor's degree, I'd be a bachelor of science, BS. <laughs> oh, BS. Uh, that's funny. Um, MD, FACS for uh, Fellow of the American College of Surgeons, of FACOG. You got a doctorate. Fellow Excuse of me. the American College of Gynecology. You don't mention your bachelor's when you have a doctorate degree. That's right. You have a doctorate well, why degree. why are you mentioning your uh, oh, did you mention your... I only mentioned my master's degree. Oh, okay. Yes, you're right. So, your highest education. All right, so MD, ARMP, uh, no. <laughs> Are you a nurse You want to know something? Who cares? All right? The bottom line is... Uh, I thought it was I funny, want though. you guys out there to well, I mean, stay safe in a disaster. Absolutely. That's all that matters and doesn't matter only what the initials after yes, our names mean. Yes, I'm all only right. explaining because actually I talked to a friend and she didn't even understand what it meant how you got to be a nurse practitioner. All right. Just a little tidbit of education there. Friends and neighbors. Friends and neighbors. Have you been injured in an accident <laughs> with a rancorous raccoon? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and the opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but what happens in a disaster when the hospital's on fire, the ambulance needs a brake job, and the rescue helicopter is piloted by the captain of the Titanic. Ah, <laughs> uh, now you're in trouble. That's a bad choice. Well, somebody's got to be the end of the line when it comes to keeping their people healthy in times like that. And you know what? That someone might just be you. So show the world you got more sense than an order of oysters and get some training and education. And while you're at it, how about some supplies and a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge? What better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled, by the way, medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster, and they're designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for content, quality, cost. Gosh, compare any item of our kit with anybody else's stuff, and you'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage or in your school or in your church or anywhere else that problems can occur our kits are approved by the way for your health and flexible savings accounts that's important to know you could actually devote some of your money from those accounts to this and we will give you whatever paperwork you need read our testimonials page by the way at store.doomandbloom.net and see what people have to say about our medical kits and service and i'll bet that you will become our customer Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us. So, so obvious. That's true. So connect with the old goat and the beautiful you and <laughs> that's E-W-E 
and call, Paul. It is easy. It is so easy. And you know how easy it is? Here's another same easy. Oh, by the way, I want to talk a little bit. By the way, <laughs> you can talk I called you a, the beautiful you, E-W-E. The truth of the matter is, is that a female goat is not a you. A female goat is called a nanny. And the funny thing is that there's actually a little bit of controversy about that or, or a little bit of variation. Oh, really? Because a female goat is really called a doe. A male goat is called a buck, but also called a billy a billy goat. Oh, interesting. That's right. Now, if you were a male goat that was unfortunate enough to get castrated, they call you a weather, W-E-T-H-E-R. And a young goats, or a mother goat is called a dam. And uh, a, let's see, a female goat is called, may, may be called a doling. I mean, baby goats. Mm-hmm. A young female goat may, it, uh, may be called a doling, but of course, baby goats are called kids. So... That's a little aside. Yes. And so how can the people contact us? Absolutely. Contact us anytime by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. Also, like and follow our Facebook page for Doom and Bloom. It is Doom and Bloom. That one's easy. That's right. (laughs) We have a YouTube channel, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. And let's see, I think... Well, we have we do have Pinterest also. Yes, you can find us on Pinterest as well. Yep. And uh, under Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. One easy way to get to all of these things I just mentioned is the top of doomandbloom.net. I have all the little social media buttons. There's for the YouTube, the Facebook group, just the Facebook, the Twitter, the Pinterest. It's all there with one click, you can get to anything you need to go to. That's right. By the way, our medical products are also online under the name Grab and Go. That's one of our new trademarks is Grab and Go. And you'll see probably the term Grab and Go on our website in a number of different places as in time the future. goes on. That's, that's right. <laughs> I'm going to get to that. <laughs> All right. Well, anyhow, I'm tempted to talk about heat waves because... We oh, are seeing boy. a lot of places that are experiencing heat waves. But guess what? We did that subject the show before last. So I'm going to not talk about that. I want you to check out our Blog Talk channel, blogtalkradio.com. Uh, just put out put Survival Medicine in search, and you'll get our channel, and you'll see it as the, well, it will be, once this show is up, the third, the third show down the list. And you'll find it. So if you want to find out more about heat waves, lots of information about that. I also wanted to talk about the California wildfires. There are wildfires near Los Angeles that apparently have been started by an individual. One person has started about 10 of these fires. Wow, a real pyromaniac. And guess what? I've talked about that recently, too. So always check out. I don't want to pummel you out there with the same advice on the same subject every show. So... Remember that there are a million different topics in our archives, so you'll find information on just about anything you can imagine in the 300 shows or so that you'll find on blogtalkradio.com under Survival Medicine Hour. I do want to talk a little bit about the West since we're on this side of the Mississippi, though. Recent reports suggest that the West Coast is now at high risk, higher risk for a big earthquake, and the reason why is they found a new stress area in this, near the San Andreas Fault and what that has done is adjusted their prediction of when 
the next big one will occur is now about 75% chance, not a chance, but a 75% chance the big one's going to hit any time in the next 30 years or so. What? In 30 years? They've narrowed it down. Yeah, so at some sometime in the near future, they really expect... Is it San Andreas? Yes. Andreas. And the okay. San, San Andreas Fault. Earthquakes have been blamed on climate change by some, but you know what? The movement of the Earth's plates occurs miles below the surface, probably doesn't have much to do with what's happening on the surface of the Earth. The, the shifting of these tectonic plates, what they call, uh, releases a tremendous amount of energy, and sometimes we call that a seismic wave. And this is something that is measured by something called the Richter scale, and this measurement, usually from zero to 10, or theoretic, theoretically could be higher, identifies the magnitude of tremors in a particular location. Quakes that are less than 2.0 on the Richter scale are so common that they're unlikely to be noticed by the average person, but each increase of magnitude by one, let's say a if you go from a two to a three on the Richter scale, you actually don't have it just be 50% uh, bigger, it is it actually increases the strength by a factor of 10 and so and then three to four increases it 10 times greater than the three five 10 times greater than the four and so on the highest intensity earthquake that's ever that was ever recorded was a great earthquake in chile and that was in 1960 that was 9.5 on the richter scale wow now most people have heard of the richter scale and they assume that all earthquakes are measured using it however nowadays they use a newer measurement and that's called the moment magnitude scale and that's thought to be more accurate for higher intensity earthquakes the moment magnitude scale calculates each point of magnitude as releasing more than 30 times the energy of the previous one so instead of 10 times greater if a moment magnitude scale earthquake goes from two to three that's actually 30 times stronger and that's the theoretically not as accurate maybe for very low quake, uh, number quakes but for the higher level quakes that it's much more accurate you know, so pretty amazing now the fault a lot of these fault lines actually are offshores and if something happens offshore a tsunami or a tidal wave may actually be generated you guys all remember if you're older than seven or eight uh, a earthquake that was an 8.9 earthquake uh, magnitude that was in Japan and actually spawned a huge tidal wave which caused major damage, loss of life, and meltdowns of nuclear reactors in a place called Fukushima, Japan. You know what was really bad about an earthquake, and this I think goes also for tornadoes, is that it's relatively unpredictable. Matter of fact, much less predictable probably than even a tornado because you have to have some clouds in the sky to have a tornado but an earthquake can occur in a perfectly wonderful clear day. I will say that researchers are really working to find ways to determine when a quake will hit and maybe this is part of why they have adjusted their percent chance of a big one in the California West Coast area. By the way the West Coast also includes the Cascadian subduction zone that's up in Oregon and Washington and the truth of the matter is is that it could occur there just as likely as it could occur down in California. So basically we have to have a plan of action before before an earthquake hits 
And that's going to be a major factor in determining what your chances of survival are. Uh, this plan of action, you've got to share that with every family member, even the kids. This is very important because it's unlikely a disaster is going to occur from 9 to 5 or at any time that the entire clan is together, which is much less than that, maybe you know, dinner time or breakfast. These things don't always occur when the family is sitting together at the table or watching TV together in the evening. The truth of the matter is an earthquake, well, an earthquake could occur at the dead, in the dead of night where everybody's asleep, but it's in general unlikely that every single person is going to be in the house when an earthquake hits. You might be at work, your spouse may be at home, uh, the kids may be at school. And so, therefore, an important part of an earthquake survival plan is making sure everyone is aware of where to meet. Could be the house, could be a sturdy building like a school or an office building that's relatively nearby that might be earthquake resistant. That's something that would be certainly a factor. Uh, in any case, the important thing is to know where to meet in the event of a disaster. And if you do have everybody on board on the same page as to where they're going to go well that'll give you the best chance of getting your family together and surviving together there's a lot of supplies that are necessary to get through an earthquake or the aftermath of an earthquake well number one is to have a good medical kit i know where you can get one at store.doomandbloom.net but at the very least you're going to need the following supplies besides that You'll need food and water, and you're going to have water filters that are going to be necessary, things like the Life Straw, the Mini Sawyer. Uh, there's lots of other ones. Of course, the Berkey water filters are very, very good. You'll need power sources. as very likely that the power lines may be disrupted, so you need batteries, so solar rechargers, generators. These are very important. You need uh, tents, sleeping bags, other camping equipment might be helpful if, the, if your building has collapsed. Uh, of course, you need, therefore, clothing appropriate to the weather since you're not going to have climate control. Fire extinguishers may be very important. Uh, a toolkit, of course, including an adjustable wrench to turn off gas, water. Uh, cell phones, very, very important. But if you don't have those, and walkie-talkies are good. And you also need to always have a weather radio, NOAA weather radio, even the hand-crank version would be good. And you need to have, of course important documents insurance policies things like that are very important to have your copies of those in a safe place and don't forget cash by the way i mean don't count on credit cards and debit cards being able to be processed if the power's down and a lot of stores will probably be taking cash in these circumstances that's a kind of power uh, outage that you don't want to deal with and that is the lack of purchasing power so we talk about this of course in our survival medicine handbook and don't forget that we have a third edition out i see people are still buying this some people are still buying the second edition go always get the third edition much more extensive and covers more topics now they're in there are areas that are at risk for earthquakes as you can imagine and these places the municipalities have already put together some kind of disaster plan. Find out what that plan is. They may even have designated a quake-proof shelter and find out what that is because this may be the best place to go. Make certain that you know 
exactly what the rules are for shelters, for example. What about pets? What do they do with pets? That is one of the most important things. A lot of people leave their pets behind. I think that's terrible. You should take your pet, but you need to know what the rules are with regards to pets. Many times they won't have pet food at these shelters, but hum they will have human food. Absolutely. I think shelters are actually getting better about figuring out that they have people that will not come to shelters unless they can bring basically their child. A lot of people feel that their pet is as important as perhaps a child that they've had. So, you know, especially the older folks. I know my father was devastated a couple of weeks ago when his dog passed. I don't want to say he loved it more than me and my brother, but <laughs> he it was around more than we were, so yeah. perhaps. You know, it's just they're not going to leave it. So I think shelters are starting to understand that they're going to have a better rate of evacuation and people flocking towards shelters for protection and less loss of life if they work out some kind of solution for these pets. So I, I think it's getting better as time goes on. You know, one thing that I believe that people really don't pay enough attention to is having materials that will help them get home in their car. They, of course, a lot of people feel that their material that'll get them home is their car, but there are going to be streets that may be torn up or may really have been disrupted during an earthquake and it may be difficult to get home so the important thing to do is to have a go bag but in this case not a go get out of dodge bag but a get home bag and so for, for that bag you need things like some non-perishable food some liquids and a pair of sturdy comfortable shoes that's really important because you may wind up having eventually to walk home if the roads are really out in the home let's say you're in your house it's important to always know where your gas electric and main water uh, water main shutoffs are uh, make sure that everybody that is of a certain age knows how to turn them off if there's a leak or an electrical short uh, you should always know where the nearest medical facility is even if you're a healthy schmelfy that's really important but be aware that you may be on your own the medical responders might be overwhelmed may not get to you quickly these earthquakes are mass casualty type events and you have to realize that roads may be impassable due to damage or just traffic snarls so you may have to be the end of the line at least for a period of time in in a earthquake situation you should take a good look around your house you know can identify fixtures like chandeliers and bookcases that might be a little too unstable to withstand the jostling they'll get in an earthquake uh, examine cabinets for heavy objects make sure that the heavy objects are on low shelves not high shelves that is very important they'll make the bookcases and, or other cabinetry more stable in the family room flat screen tvs especially large ones could e easily topple make sure that you use whatever bracketry or hardware that comes with it to fasten it to a wall if that's po if that's possible that's something to consider uh, be sure to check out your kitchen and pantry shelves for glass objects or pots and pans that could easily land on you in now in the bedroom check the stability of anything that might be hanging over the back of the headboard of your bed if you have like a mirror or some other you know big family portrait over your bed they could easily fall on you as a result of a nighttime quake, so make sure that you don't have anything that could hurt you if 
if you have something over the headboard. Now, three words to remember when an earthquake hits is basically drop, cover, and hold. That's very important. That's what you should do when the tremors start. When things start shaking, you got to keep a cool head about you. And if you're indoors, get under a desk, a table, something else solid, hold on. A mattress even might do. Uh, uh, cover like this might protect you from falling objects. So that's the cover. Then you have to drop to get under the cover and hold on for dear life. If there is no hard cover, remember that mattress might be very useful. Now, if there is no cover whatsoever, then I would head to the corner of an inside wall in a building. But the truth of the matter is you want to be out of the building, right? You want to get out of that building if you possibly can. You have to remember, though, you're more stable on your knees rather than standing and running if it's really a severe quake. So get down to prevent a fall from causing injuries. You have to be very careful about running because you can easily, let's say, fall downstairs or get hit by falling debris. You have to be very careful about that. Do not use the elevator if you're in an office building. You should also steer, steer clear of windows, shelves, and kitchen areas. So that's something that's important. Some people say you should stand in a doorway because of the frame sturdiness. But in modern homes, believe it or not, doorways aren't much more solid than any other part of the structure. And even if it were, you could still get hit by falling objects. That's something that you need to know. Once the initial tremors are over, go outside. And once there, stay as far out in the open as you possibly can, away from power lines, chimneys, walls, anything else that could possibly fall on top of you. Now, you could be in your car. And we talked a little bit about what you should have in your car. But what do you do if you are actually in your car and driving when an earthquake hits? Well, get out of traffic as quickly as possible because, believe me, other drivers are not going to be as level-headed as you are. Don't stop your car under bridges, trees, overpass, power lines, light posts, anything that can topple in a major quake. And stay in your vehicle while the tremors are active. Uh, turn on the radio if you can to follow, find out more about the event and what the authorities are telling you to do. After the earthquake, there's still lots of dangers or gas leaks that are possible. Make sure you don't use camp stoves, lighters, or even matches until you're certain or all is clear, and certainly never, never inside. Even a match could ignite a spark that could lead to an explosion. Now, if you did turn the gas off, you might consider letting the utility company turn it back on in case there has been some other damage that has occurred. Now, buildings that do have damage are going to be probably a little unstable. They could have loose concrete that could rain down on you. So before you enter, think twice. I remember that the falling stone from damaged buildings killed rescuers in the Oklahoma City bombing and also in the World Trade Towers collapse. So these are big concerns that you, you go into a building that's been damaged, it may not be safe. Now, of course, power may be down. A lot of people are going to be tempted to use generators. Make sure you use them outside. And not just outside, but well away from the interior of the home. I remember a family of four in Florida after Hurricane Irma was hospitalized, all of them, when a generator was used outside, but just very close to the home's entrance. Now, don't count on telephone service after a disaster like this. Telephone companies only have enough lines to deal with about 20% of total call volume at any one time. It's likely that a larger percentage than that are going to be occupied or, or at least to the max 
after a disaster, but there seems to be less issue with text. So you'll have a better chance to communicate by texting rather than voice. And so make sure, old folks, that you know how to text and you are aware of how to use that modality for communication. It is really important. Uh, that cell phone may also come in handy, of course, if you're trapped under rubble after an earthquake. A voice call or a text might alert, alert rescue personnel that you are in trouble. If you live in quake country, you might also consider a whistle on your keychain. It's loud. It will last longer than your voice as a signal for help. So that's important. Don't give up if help doesn't arrive immediately. People can live a few days without water and even longer without food. I would have whistles everywhere. Yes. They're so small. You can have them sitting on bookshelves, on the side of your bed. Keychains, anywhere. Yeah, in your car. I mean, you can have them everywhere, and you can just grab them quickly in case something starts to shake. Or just wear it as a necklace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that would be that be being safe. Maybe we should start a business where we sell whistles with people's mm-hmm. names engraved on them so they look kind of fancy. Oh. Gold-plated. Fancy whistles. Silver-plated. Yeah. Your whistle Colored. Bo- your whistle boutique. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Now, what we, should also, what we really should do is sell work shoes, work gloves, protective goggles. There you go. Because when you're picking up after the quake, those kind of things, maybe even hard hats, would be a good idea. Talk about injuries. That's right. Everything's going to be sharp and want to poke you. Right. Look poke bef- you and cut you. Right. Look before you step and make sure that you stay safe. That's important. Well, and also the way a house could collapse, not that you should be going through rubble in your house, I guess unless pe- you hear people underneath it. Um, um, that's what emergency responders are for. Right. But if you are doing something dangerous, be careful of the stability of what's underneath you. You could be the next victim if you step, especially in a wooden house that's collapsed. It could just collapse a little more under your weight. So you could end up in that same situation. So be super careful where you're walking. Okay, so now let's go to an entirely different Oh, yeah. Where are we going? That's right. We're going to (laughs) go to the wonderful world of insects. Oh, bugs. (laughs) We saw some very cool bugs yesterday. Remember the yellow grasshoppers uh, on the lava, on the the hardened lava? Young grasshopper. (laughs) Beautiful. I think it was yellow and green. Well, this kind of bug is not so beautiful and is certainly not something you want to catch. This is the bed bug. Oh, no. Oh, man. We're in a hotel room right now. I, I did know. check for bed bugs. And that's why I wanted to talk about it right now, because, indeed, we're going to be spending the next couple of, couple of weeks in hotels. And Wait, knock on wood. Knock on, I'm, hopefully we won't deal with it. But, but you're really good about checking seams of mattresses and Always bring a flashlight. joints of, of furniture and stuff like that. And yes. you should always have a flashlight and maybe a magnifying glass if you, ha- if you can. I don't think we if told, you're going to travel. Yeah, I don't think we told folks that when we went to visit Jack Spirko uh-huh. over in um, Captiva and Sanibel, Sanibel Island, Florida, that we actually had to change rooms because there were bed bugs. Do you yep. remember? Yep. I started I getting bites, and I whipped those covers off, and I found one, and then I pulled the bed away from the wall. Very violently, I might add. Yes, you were very concerned. <laughs> at like 11 o'clock at night. Yes. And bam, I had a bed bug on a napkin. 
My that was gosh. crazy. Well, let me tell you about bed, bu bed bugs. The common bed bug is actually belongs to the species Cymex lectularius, and it's a small wingless insect. It's thought to have originated in caves where both bats and humans made their homes, and somehow it managed to make its way from bats to humans. And it has been, the bed bug has been part of history. I mean, ancient Greeks such as Aristotle actually mentioned them in their writings. And there was such a serious issue during World War II that they actually used a hydrogen cyanide, hydrogen cyanide gas. Cyanide. Let's just repeat that right. word. They used cyanide. Called folks. Zyklon, which was infamously used in Nazi concentration camps in their gas chambers. And they, the, we and other countries used that same type of gas, not under that brand, and we implemented it to get rid of infestations. There are a number of species that are found of bed bugs. They're in various climates. And the funny thing about bed bugs is that unlike lice, for example, they're not very picky about the species that they bite every time. So you can actually find certain pets getting bitten by bed bugs. Uh, you can find bed bug species that infest poultry, bats, things like that. Adult bed, bu bed bugs are light to medium brown. And they have oval flat bodies about four millimeters long. They actually will fit very nicely in a on a dime with a lot of room to spare. And they get a little bigger after they eat a meal of blood. And that's how they get you. Juveniles <laughs> are called nymphs. They're lighter in color, almost uh, see-through. And there are several nymph stages before they become adults. And to progress to adulthood, you always have to have a meal of blood. Your blood. How about that? So how did your home get bed bugs? Bed bugs arrive in various ways, such as being brought in from infested buildings on a visitor's clothing or luggage, infested items such as furniture that's brought into a home, if you buy some used furniture, through ductwork, other passageways, and they could be actually transferred by bus or even airline, airline seating. So if you travel, we traveled by plane this time around, and so we actually could have had a bed bug decide to hitch a ride on us. Now, you might have a tendency to blame your dog for the problem, and you may be able to blame your dog for fleas, but as bed bugs don't live on animals, pets are not considered to spread infestations. Your pet is just as eligible as you are for bites, remember. Strangely, bed bugs don't like to live in your clothes, like body lice, or on your skin and hair, like fleas. They actually don't care much for heat and prefer to spend more time in your backpack or luggage than under your arm, let's say. Now that means you have to do a thorough search to find their nests. Now to achieve this goal, you need a magnifying glass and you need to look at every seam in your mattress, in your, on your linens, backpacks, furniture, in the, when you look in the furniture, look in the joints uh, between the wood. Uh, bed bugs will also hide uh, in bedboards, head uh, baseboards of beds, you'll probably find bed bug families of different ages if you really have had bed bugs for a while, along with some uh, little brown stains called fecal markings and maybe even some small amounts of dried blood. Bed bugs are mostly active at night. 
They'll bite the exposed skin of people that are sleeping. They'll feed on their blood. Then they'll retreat to hiding places in the seams of mattresses, linens, and furniture. The bites are usually painless, but later on, a lot of people get these itchy, sort of raised welts on the skin. And the severity of the response just varies from person to person. Some people actually don't manifest any symptoms of it they don't, they don't, or, or signs of it. They don't get a welt or a rash or anything. So the bottom line is, is that you have to be very, very, very careful. A lot of people do confuse, by the way, the bites of bed bugs with mosquitoes or fleas. Now, the difference is that most flea bites will occur around the ankles, while bed bugs will bite any area of skin that's exposed to them during the night. So you can get bed bug bites on your face. Flea bites also, by the way, usually have a characteristic central red spot. Sometimes bed bugs will bite in a series of nearby areas that gives the classic breakfast lunch and dinner pattern is what they call it now the funny thing is that the environmental protection agency tells us that just the appearance of bites is not an indicator of bed bug infestation lots of times they'll you'll confuse things like this with rashes like eczema or fungal infections and as i said some people just don't seem to have any reaction at all to them for some reason or another as bed bugs don't transmit disease, that's one good, the only one good thing about bed bugs is that they don't transmit Lyme disease like ticks, or they don't transmit uh, Ebola like bats, they don't transmit uh, malaria like mosquitoes. Well, at the very least, all, all you need to do is to alleviate the symptoms of the bites. And the most common treatment for that is hydrocortisone cream. It treats rashes and inflammation. But you might also consider using some Benadryl, diphenhydramine for itching because there's going to be a lot of itching many times in these cases. The, the true cure, though, is you got to eradicate the bed bug from your retreat. And that is truly not an easy thing to do. Once bed bugs are identified, most will immediately want to treat with chemicals. Pesticides in the pyrethroid family, malathion, things like that, they've been uh, found to be effective. There's another one called propoxor, and that's an insecticide and highly toxic to bed bugs, but it's not approved for indoor use in the U.S. due to health risks to humans, too. If you use chemicals, make sure you cover all areas of the bed. You've got to include the frame and the slats. You've got to expect several treatments to be required to eliminate the infestation you have to repeat it at least once 10 days after the initial treatment. You might quite understandably, of course, be concerned about the effects of having pesticides in your bed area. Well, some have suggested using natural predators, but this is really impractical. Of course, the bed bug predator list includes a lot of things like ants and spiders and roaches and mites, and you don't want any of these anywhere near your bed. Now, one reasonable option for mattresses at least that avoids the use of chemicals, the, is the use of bedding covers. That's a strategy known as encasing. We have those. That's right. And for the pillows, too. That's right. Just That's so we right. don't bring anything home from all these trips that outings, we take. Yes. these teachings and well, conferences. We exactly. <laughs> now, special sheets or padding are produced that actually are used to cover your mattress and your, your pillowcases and things like your pillows and things like that. And what this does is it traps bed bugs inside until they starve. If a bed bug can't reach you to get a meal of blood, eventually it's got to die, though it takes it a good long time to do that. Uh, if you're home, make sure to place all bedding and clothes in a hot dryer for, say, an hour. 
Usually washing alone is not going to kill bed bugs. Although hot soapy water over 125 degrees, if you get it nice and hot, might actually work. And I hate to say it, but this includes your backpack when you return home from a trip. If you live in Alaska or someplace that gets really, really cold for a few days in a row, commonly, well, extreme cold is indeed an effective treatment. If you live far enough north, four or five days of exposing bedding to temperatures approaching zero degrees Fahrenheit, that should do it as well. Now, if you have access to a working vacuum, use it on all your flooring, all your upholstery, and you might use a stiff brush to scrub mattress seams before you vacuum to try to get some of that off and onto the floor and uh, easy, easy to remove. Now, there have been so many natural remedies for eradicating bed bugs, and not all of them work. In the past, everything from black pepper to turpentine has been used to eradicate, eradicate bed bug infestations. Natural remedies that are used today include dusting seams with diatomaceous earth. As the insects travel over a generous powdering of that, it tears up their abdomen, and over a couple of weeks or so, they die. It takes a while, and the reason for the delay is probably that diatomaceous earth doesn't kill bed bug eggs. It should be noted that only food-grade diatomaceous earth should be used for this purpose, that those with lung issues like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, really should consider other types of treatment. It's not good for your lungs. Uh, many people swear by tea tree oil and rubbing alcohol. That Here's a way that you can put that together. One cup of water, and this is a mix of different essential oils, La tea tree oil, maybe some lavender essential oil, rosemary, eucalyptus oil, clove bud oil, any combination of this, uh, these might be good, maybe about 10 drops of, of each of the ones that you happen to have, and place that in a fine mist bottle and shake well before using it and spray the heck out of the area. And that might actually work. That's a natural remedy that a lot of people swear by. As bed bugs can live for months without a meal, it's really important to maintain long-term diligence in identifying bed bugs whenever and wherever you are hitting the road because you may bring them home. And these bugs may not end your life, but they can certainly make it pretty darn miserable. Hey, we're proud to be part of the expert council for Jack Spirico's survival podcast, maybe the granddaddy of all preparedness podcasts. And we get questions from their listeners as well as from our listeners and answer them from a medical standpoint and from a survival standpoint as well. We mentioned diatomaceous earth in our last talk about bed bugs. And so I wanted to bring this question in about, about diatomaceous earth, this time for water filtering purposes. Our listener asks if diatomaceous earth can be part of a water filter that can be homemade in situations where you might be surprised to hear the answer and the process. And we'll talk about that right now. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Chad, who writes, Can diatomaceous earth be used to purify water? 
If I can't use my Berkey or other water filters, could diatomaceous earth be added to a water bottle to kill bacteria and viruses? I understand it wouldn't take out chemicals or particulates, but I think it would kill off the bed bugs. Thanks, Chad in San Francisco. By the way, I love your book. Oh, thanks, Chad. We love our book, too. Diatomaceous earth, Chad, is a powder. And for people who don't know, it's made of almost pure silica manufactured from the fossilized skeletons of diatoms, one-celled algae. Diatomaceous earth filtration is indeed a thing, and it is a process that uses the skeletal remains of these guys as a filter media. Commercially, this is known as pre-coat filtration and relies upon a layer of diatomaceous earth placed on a filter element, also known as a septum. Diatomaceous earth filters are simple to operate, effective in removing a lot of things, cysts, algae, even asbestos from water. They've been employed in many food and beverage applications for more than 70 years. It, they were a main method to filter drinking water during World War II. It remains an EPA-approved technology for filtering drinkable water. Chad, now you're right about diatomaceous earth also being effective against bed bugs, although I hope you don't have any in your drinking water. We'll talk about that some other time. But you're asking how to make diatomaceous earth in a water bottle as a homemade filter. By itself, I think the diatomaceous earth filters would be most suitable to treat water with low bacterial count and low level of cloudiness, also known as turbidity. I think it would be more effective with several layers of different substances. Remember, what are you trying to do? You're trying to mimic the natural filtration of water by different ground layers. Now, here's a way to achieve that goal. Choose a 2-liter clear plastic bottle or other container for the filter. Cut out the bottom of the bottle completely using a sharp knife or scissors. The water goes in here. Then drill a small hole in the cap. The water goes out here. Place a coffee filter, cotton, or other porous barrier on the inside of the bottleneck. This is going to be the last segment of your water filter and also will hold all the particles from the filter layers. Put a few spoons of diatomaceous earth. This will be the first layer above the filter medium. Place another layer. Uh, you can place another filter if you want, but then place a layer of activated charcoal on the top of the diatomaceous earth layer. That's going to be the second layer. Then pour fine grain sand on the charcoal layer, at least two inches worth, and then pour a layer of large grain sand over the layer of fine grain sand. So you're pouring sand in different thicknesses on top of the charcoal, and that's on top of the diatomaceous earth. I want you then to pour a layer of fine gravel over the layer of sand. Finally, pour a layer of large gravel on top of the fine gravel. Make sure to pack at least two inches for each of these layers that I'm giving you to fill out the whole filter. Insert a straw cap into the hole of the bottle cap that you made in the beginning. Position the filter over a container, and the water you pour into the upside-down bottle will slowly make its way through all the layers, simulating the way water is filtered naturally. You might say that's a pretty good water filter even without the diatomaceous earth, and you'd be right. But an extra high-quality layer sounds like a good idea to me. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our award-winning third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Hey, if you have a question for old Dr. Bones and the lovely nurse Amy that you would like to hear discussed on this show, make sure you send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we are always looking for new topics that we haven't connected with before that can give you the best chance of surviving in good times or bad.
that's about all the time that we have. That's so sad. For this week. You did but a great a, job, one of honey. Very sad things. What a good job. Now, next week, we're going to be in the great state of Montana, so don't forget that. We're going to have a lot of interesting travel logs. We're oh, yeah. Make you watch our home movies and all, <laughs> all that stuff. You will suffer greatly next suffer week. Suffer greatly. Even more than you suffer this week uh, hearing about the hardened lava of the craters of the moon we'll national have, monument i'm not sure we will have been to yellowstone yet i think our first visit to yellowstone is going to be on friday next week all right we'll probably right? talk about places like big sky montana bozeman montana and no we wouldn't have been Boz- to bozeman yet not yet well uh, we'll have we will no i'm sorry we will yeah, have we will. one night there yes thursday night we're going to sleep in bozeman so so we'll have a one night experience <laughs> Then, they do have some cool museums, too. Yes, if you have advice as to where you think that we should be going in those areas, hey, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Thanks so much for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour. We will see you next week. Thanks. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.